Hi, I'm Ashley Nichols. I'm Casey Boyd-Swan. And this is the Growing Democracy Podcast, a space for citizens, experts, and advocates to create community together. Each week, we invite a guest to talk about civic engagement, governance, and how to grow our democracy. This week on the podcast, we continue with our theme, Serving the Public Interest. We're talking with local elected officials and non-elected government officials about what motivated them to work in government and what they're doing to increase civic engagement and break down barriers in their communities. This week, we're um, focusing on two things, and I, I want to put these two elements out there, and then we can talk about them a little bit. And, and, and the first is thinking strategically about the level of government where we can make meaningful change, um, and that might be different in different scenarios. And then the second about the invisibility of government. And I think that those are very interrelated. Yeah. I I mean, one of the things that our guest uh, early on, I I think hits that, that that for both of us was really um, uh, insightful was that we have these layers of government that I think are really misunderstood. And um, a lot of folks maybe don't understand Right, that you have federal, state, local government, and that even local government is broken apart into <laughs> multiple different layers, right? Right, that a county is not the same as a city, um, and that townships are different uh, in terms of w- what they can and cannot do. Right, and that on top of all of that, that you have these uh, working relationships between levels of government, um, where counties are responsible for some state uh, functions and yeah. that, that these are closely uh, tied relationships uh, and, and oftentimes, right, budgets even. Yeah. And so as a result, because there's so many different forms of government, um, different levels of government, oftentimes these these entities uh, tend to work behind the scenes. People don't know what they're doing. And that is both Good and bad, possibly, right? <laughs> so, um, right. So, the invisibility could mean that government is functioning and you're not worrying about it. Your your roads are paved and your sewer system is working, and all of these things are happening seamlessly, and you never have to think about it. But it can also be really challenging because it means that if you're not paying attention, uh, it doesn't have to be super transparent, right? And so, there's this the complexity of what it means for these levels of government to be pretty invisible from for the majority of people. Yeah, and and this this complexity coupled with invisibility can further frustration on the part of uh residents, right? And that if there's a problem, where do they go to? And and how does that play out? Who should I contact? And maybe in some cases I have to contact multiple people at, at different governments. Um, and and this can kind of erupt into a, a space where it's like, well, never mind, government doesn't work for me. Yeah, and I think that's part of the reasons that we love this series and, and thinking about what this series can offer um, and really thinking about strategically what different levels of government, what different people in different agencies um, or elective bodies can do at different levels. That's why we're really excited that for this series, we're starting off our conversation with Councilwoman Elizabeth Walters from Summit County. 
All right. So this week uh, we have with us Councilwoman Elizabeth Walters. Liz is serving her second term representing the citizens of Summit County as an at-large member and current vice president. On council, she's the chair of the Personnel Committee and is vice chair of the Planning and Economic Development Committee. She's been active on a wide variety of issues and led the passage and implementation of paid parental leave for county employees, the only Ohio county to pass such legislation. Currently, she chairs the Summit County Environmental Sustainability Task Force and is the vice chair of the Special Committee to Address Racism as a Public Health Crisis. Outside of council, Liz is the principal for Cuyahoga Valley Group, a project-focused consulting firm established to manage senior-level initiatives for the public and civic sector. She focuses on clients working across a wide range of philanthropic, civic engagement, and political issues. She's a lifetime Girl Scout and has been active with the organization as a member, employee, or volunteer since the age of five. That's impressive. (laughs) Liz serves on the advisory committee for the Summit Food Coalition, on the advisory council for the United Way of Summit County's Financial Empowerment Centers, and as an alumna of the American Council of Young Political Leaders. Liz earned a BA in history from St. Vincent College in Latrobe, Pennsylvania, and her master's in public administration from Cleveland State University. We'll forgive you. It's totally okay. No, I'm kidding, kidding, kidding. <laughs> She's a, uh, she and her rescue dog, Beatrice, live on the west side of Akron. We're so excited to have you here today. Thank you for having woman. me. I've always j- like joked with some of my colleagues that I'm like, I, if I'm ever going to run for anything else than around here, I got to go back to one like Akron or Kent State or OSU or something and get a another set of letters. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Um, all right. So to start, can you tell us a little bit about your role as a Summit County Council member and, and maybe a little bit about some of the general duties you have in your current position? Yeah, sure. So uh, County Council is the legislative arm of Summit County government. We are one of two uh charter forms of government. So we have an executive and a council instead of the three commissioner system. We adopted that in Summit County in 1979. We were the first in Ohio. The second and the only other is Cuyahoga, who I believe adopted it in 2011 or 2012, somewhere in that space. So uh, we were on our own for quite a while. But uh, in that system of government, it the best way I describe it to folks is it essentially functions very much like a mayor and a city council, except it's on a county level. So we have an executive and a council body under our charter, which uh, if you are bored and want to read it, it's interesting stuff. It really lays out our duties, right? We are uh, responsible for the creation of departments, agencies, boards and commissions. We are responsible for oversight and voting on budgets for not only the operations of the executives uh, and her cabinet, but also every constitutional office holder at the county level. So we're the oversight body on budget for like the sheriff, the clerk of courts, the judicial system. And then because we are a charter county, uh, one of the things that sets us a little apart compared to our, you know, 86 compatriots around the state is that we do have a little bit more runway around home rule. So we can legislate a little bit more proactively than say, you know, Stark County who has a commissioner system. Commissioner systems are much more tightly bound to Ohio revised code and the whim of the state legislature. So we don't do it often, uh, which is really for the better. Restraint is a little bit better in that space, but uh, there are times when it calls for it and when we're able to do a little bit more uh, creative work. Paid parental leave is a great example, right? 
we're the one of the only of 88 counties that offers it. Part of that is because 86 counties don't have the authority to give it. They have to rely on the state legislature and whatever the Ohio employment rules are to pass something like that. So that's really the best way to describe it. I think that people probably either don't know or forget how much um, the county is responsible for just a vast array of of functions of their everyday lives. So it's it's yeah. really great to have you be here to spell it all out for us. Yeah, I always tell people when I go and speak about the county, I'm like we are officially the unsexiest form of government. Like we are not. People don't find us exciting or thrilling. I do because I get nerd. You know, you want to talk about sewers and tree maintenance, and like I could go all day. I found it fascinating, but most people don't. And I think that the other really, you know, important when you people ask, what is a county government? We are the administrative arm of the state. We exist to carry out state government at a local level, plus a few other things, right? So like, really, when you think about it, we are the, the most public facing localized level of the administration of federal and state benefits and federal and state safety nets and federal and state infrastructure programs. Well, that is what we do. Yeah. So what drew you to this work and how did you decide to run for elected office? Uh, How much time do we got? Um, I think so. You know, there's there's a very long version of that story, which has a lot more nuance. But I can tell you that the short version is I did not grow up in a political household. We my parent like my mom voted. My mom was involved in like civic organizations, but I didn't grow up with this as like someday I was going to do it or it wasn't really in my, you know, my kind of what I wanted to be when I grow, grew up type of thing. And to be honest, for a lot of folks, it's not. You come to politics, you come to policy for deeply personal reasons, which is what happens for most of us, right? Something happens in your personal life or with your family, or you see something happening in the community around you and you say, hey, that's not right. And you try to figure out how to do something. And then you come into this world of how laws get made or how changes happen. And you, for some people, they're like, this is really interesting. And they run towards it. And other people are like, no, I'm going to go change the world some other way. And that's okay too. Right. But it's different for different folks. But for me, I think the, you know, the personal side, the personal side of it is I, I grew up in a multi-generational household. My uh, mom and I lived with my grandparents uh, from when I was seven and until they passed. And when my grandfather was ill, it was before healthcare reform. And he uh, really quick decided really early on in his second round of cancer, he was like, I'm done. I don't want to do this anymore. And my mom was a nurse who had worked uh, for one of our local hospitals for 30 years, and she didn't have paid family leave. And my grandfather really quickly fell into the Medicare donut hole, which many seniors do at the end of life because our country doesn't do a very good job of having good policy to support quality end of life care for everyone that doesn't require a loved one to like quit their job or take unpaid leave to care for them. And that's what ended up happening to my mom. And she ended up in a bankruptcy my senior year of college. And it completely changed my worldview because, you know, I didn't, I grew up in a very loving home. I never wanted for anything. This was really like to see this happen to my mom and in such, in such a fast pace was really, really changed how I saw the world around me. So that happened. And then the second thing that happened, which was a little bit more lighthearted, is after I finished college, I went to uh, DC and I had a paid fellowship with the Girl Scouts. They have a, most people don't know this, but they have an office in Washington that is there to lobby on behalf of girls and issues that matter to girls. And so everything from STEM uh, education access to nutrition policy to juvenile justice reform, Girl Scouts make their opinions heard to legislators. 
Uh, and I was there right after the last time they did lobbying reform. And so there was this huge change on Capitol Hill where you could no longer go and sit down to fancy dinners paid by lobbyists. But the rules had a dollar value of what you could give to legislators. And funny enough, Girl Scout cookies were underneath the gift. They fell within the gift ban. And so you'd load up a bag full of Thin Mints and your policy briefs and truck up to Capitol Hill and everybody loved you. They're like, oh yeah, come on in, let's talk about your issues. And I got a completely false sense of what it was really like to work in Washington politics. I'm like, this is great, I love this. I'm gonna do this forever. And it's because I had Thin Mints and <laughs> the Girl Scouts, you know, like, so, uh, but it, that really is what started me on my path. And so, you know, fast forward through, I, you know, worked for uh, the presidential campaign. I met my hometown congresswoman and worked for Betty Sutton for a few years, both in D.C. and Ohio. Uh, I went and did committee work, worked for the Ohio Democratic Party, worked for organized labor for a while. Uh, and it was an amazing career and I loved it. Uh, but really, you get to a point with that stuff. Some people who are lifers, I admire them, but it is a lifestyle choice and it's really hard to cont continuously move every year, two years. And my mom was getting older. I'm an only child and she was uh, not well. And so I'm like, all right, I got to come back home. And I wanted to. I love Akron. I missed it. I miss being here and uh, being close to my family. And so I came back home, was uh, potentially going to run for the state Senate at the encouragement of some folks from that I'd known from party life. And uh, the if you, I don't know how long familiar you are with local politics, but when Mayor Pasqualic resigned in the middle of his last year in office and decided not to run, it kind of set off a series of dominoes that opened up a seat on county council. And so the at the county executive at the time, a man named Russ Pry, who uh, a lot of us are lucky to call a friend and mentor, who ended up passing away in 2016 came to me and said, you, sh you should consider this. Like the, uh, everyone on council is over 60. Um, we need to start thinking about the next generation. I think you'd be a great fit for this. I don't think you're going to win the Senate race. Like come and come and do this and I'll support you and I'll help you figure out how to get it done. And that's what happened. And it was the like I, one of those moments in your life where you know in your gut instantly that's the right decision. And it's been awesome. So that's how I ended up on county council. And I've run twice to keep the seat now. So it's been good. That's that's fantastic. I mean, and, and you've worked in a lot of different spaces, right? So mm -hmm. from being in DC mm -hmm. and thinking about state government and, and now in county government, and, and you alluded to this previously, uh, so many people aren't familiar with the unsexy county government. Yeah. <laughs> can yeah. you, can I, and you, you, you spelled out some of it, but can you go back just a little bit and tell us more about the role of county government? What, yeah. what is it? And what does Summit County Council do? So uh, county government oversees a series of agencies and departments that provide either kind of break down into three categories, basic services, social safety net, and infrastructure. So job and family services is our biggest department. It's our, it's our, the biggest touch we have on the public. And this is where anyone who is um, going through a hard time, uh, maybe is facing unemployment, is uh, got qualifies for Medicaid, qualify for SNAP, uh, nutritional uh, assistance for food stamps, all that goes through Job and Family Services. Um, and it's a, it's a, these are all programs that we don't, we don't necessarily create the rules for, but we administer, right? So it's, 
it's both the beauty and the strain of the American experiment, which is many levels of government focused into one entity, which makes uh, provides important, important resources for people that can be tricky to navigate and tricky to administer sometimes because we're bound by rules that we don't make uh, locally. So the ability to be like nimble or innovative, uh, although I feel we do a very good job at that, can also be challenging but based on things beyond our control. On the basic services side, we provide everything from, you know, the Department of Animal Control. We we are the county's animal uh, facility uh, for uh, before any of those most of those animals end up in one of the kind of boutique adoption centers. They usually come through us first. We are a uh, on an infrastructure side. We are the sewer system for anyone that's not in a home rule city. So uh, anything that's a village or a township, we help. We approve their design. We approve land zoning. We approve their sewer systems. We uh, are a co-op buyer for gas and electric for communities around the county. And then on the economic development side, which is probably kind of our special projects department, we work collaboratively with all of our communities to help bring in businesses to provide bids for folks looking to move their locations Uh, We work with big employers to offer incentives on different taxes to bring more jobs into the community. And we even try to be more mindful to help businesses think about how, like, or communities think about how we create special tax districts or special improvement districts in their localities to incentivize businesses or help their existing businesses grow and thrive. So, I mean, it's when I say that there's, you know, 12 departments and 32 boards and commissions plus five other constitutional office holders, like... It's a lot like the sheriff's department, you know, we provide, we are the jailer. Uh, people come into our custody. We provide the the custody services for anyone in, that's violated county law, sometimes Ohio law. And then our sheriff's department also though offer functions as police, a policing entity in communities that contract with them. So for example, green city of green in Summit County doesn't have its own police department. They contract with the sheriff. And then I think the last important piece for folks to know is that anywhere there's not a home rule city, county law, we are the the next revised code. We're like, we are their code and anything we do, anything we pass applies to them. So uh, a great example of this is we did Tobacco 21 last, I think it was late last year where we made it, uh, you had to be 21 and over to buy tobacco in Summit County. Except unless you lived in a town with home rule who didn't also want to pass that legislation concurrently with us, uh, you could buy tobacco in your town. So it's it can be frustrating because you try to do something holistically for like public health and you really have to get every community on board. So I think everybody but Stowe, Ohio, was Tobacco 21. But then the state passed it and then it applied to everybody. So like... You know, that's the kind of stuff that happens sometimes that can be really frustrating for folks, but that's the nature of how government is designed. Now, Liz, I I think you said something earlier that really kind of hit home for me, and I suspect for many of our listeners, which was that this wasn't uh, your idea of what you wanted to be when you grew (laughs) up, right? And I I think that for many folks, you're right, that that do serve the public interest. That's that's something that they come to because maybe they've had some sort of trauma in their lives. Can you explain from, from your perspective, how do you define, how do you think of, what does that mean to serve the public interest? Yeah, I think that is such, I, when I saw you guys send me that question, I was like, man, I don't know if I have enough time to think about that meaningfully and give you a succinct answer. 
but I do think it, you know, the, the best form of government often, at least below the federal level is one that you don't see, right? It, when we see people in chambers, it's usually because they're really mad about something. And sometimes that's a, something they're mad about. And like, it just can't be helped. Like there's a flooding problem and we have to build a sewer and people have to get assessed for that sewer. Like that is frustrating. Right. But it is that balance between doing the quiet, important work that provides for a stable society and a stable community, but also being willing to uh, listen to constituents who have who are here because they want something proactively done and balance that against the needs of the, the whole and make the right decision. Um, and usually that's the hardest decision. It's the hard decision that you have to do. And there's going to be people that are that love you and people that hate you. And usually, you know, you're doing it right when there's people on both sides. It's when they're only on one side or only on the other side that you're like, maybe we didn't do this right. Because if you almost never get universal acceptance or approval of a decision. So I think it's, you know, it's that quiet, hard work of ensuring a, a safe and, and welcoming and um, inclusive community and a, and a stable society but also being willing to have the hard conversations and make the hard decisions when you need to. I think those, when those two things work together, that's the ultimate of public service. And I, I so unrelated to that, but related to that, I do think it's also why it's particularly uh, difficult to sometimes get young people to do this work or sometimes even why it's difficult to get women to do this work uh, because there is this perception that you've got to be this like super qualified 50 year resume outspoken dynamic charismatic figure and you don't like there's there's room at the table in these spaces for all kinds of people and for all kinds of perspectives and frankly the more diverse you uh, the pe- folks you have at the table the better you often are and so i just want to encourage folks to remember that like sometimes the best public service is the stuff that goes unseen and the stuff that's like a little more like in the in the middle of the road and you don't have to be this like polarizing figure or super dynamic personality to be really effective at what you do <laughs> That's a powerful statement, and especially at the local level, right? That so much is happening, mm-hmm. um, and part of our goal is to to kind of, um, I think we've used the terminology of demystify what happens at the local government and local governance, kind of broader right. than just government level. Um, and so, I think that statement is really uh, it really will resonate with a lot of the people that listen to the podcast mm-hmm. and are part of the Growing Democracy Project. From you know. You've you've now been serving in an elected position um, for how many years has it been? Four years. How has becoming an elected official changed your ideas or opinions of government? I know you worked in you've worked in a lot of different spaces, so you know I you're coming to this uh, having maybe had some insights as to what what government looked like. But I I'd, I'd love to hear how being an elected official maybe has. <laughs> shaped your understanding of government? Yeah, I think, really, so many answers to that question. I, you know, at the risk of being overly simplistic and, and being maybe a little too humorous, you, I don't, I don't care how long you've worked in politics or you've worked on campaigns. I think there's always this romanticism to it, right? Cause we're, or this kind of secrecy uh, or not, maybe not secrecy, but like mystery is probably the right word to it. Right. Like you said, kind of demystify and you get in and, you know, we're all just human beings. 
trying to make it work. And so like, I kind of joke with folks about county government is like you go in maybe expecting like West wing light. And it's really this weird combination of like Veep and parks and rec uh, with normal people. And you love them and they're great, but we're all just people, right? Trying to do our best for our community. And and sometimes that works out really well. Uh, and sometimes just by the pure grace of God. And sometimes it's really hard and get, can be very uh, dysfunctional because it's at the end of the day, it's about human beings interacting with one another. But I do think, I think the other thing I've uh, come to appreciate is you know, we, we spent, we see as, as consumers of information, we see a lot of people standing up and talking a lot about broad, big issues. And like, I'm a huge believer in the, the social justice movement, happy to call myself a part of it. And I believe that, you know, big change, big, important change is possible. But often I think times people come into this thinking it's about writing the perfect policy or making the perfect speech or having the best talking points or message. And those are important. But the more you get into the nitty gritty, I think particularly of county government and probably city government to a certain extent, you know, it's like other important questions like how are we collecting data? Do we use data? Are we asking the right questions of the people we serve? Like really unsexy, um, like grind it out, be really detailed, uh, like almost academic level pieces because the the space between a great policy idea and actually implementing it is where it all goes wrong, right? And that's true at the federal level. We pass these big federal packages and people are so excited about it. And then everybody goes home and they forget that there's a rulemaking process where we actually decide how we're going to make that beautiful policy into actionable program. And it gets so messy, right? And it gets so messed up. And it's usually because we're doing things based on things like instinct or politics instead of making data-driven decisions about what we actually know about the people we serve, how we reach, meet them where they are and meet their needs in the highest way possible. And I think that's something I've probably learned in a real way. And it's like, it's, it's just because you learn, it doesn't mean you can fix it right away either. It's hard. Yeah. I mean, I, it, it's so, <laughs> it's so refreshing to hear you say that I, I teach program evaluation a lot to my students. And I think the biggest thing that they don't get is right. That policy creation is not the end of something that that's mm-hmm. beginning because okay. you have to put right boots on the ground. You have to make that happen. And that process is just messy. Yes. And I, I also think like the other piece of local government that people never talk about. And, uh, that is in this, I want to be clear. I'm not, this is not an excuse making, but I think it's a helpful like way to set people's perspective is, you know, the social, particularly in the social service space, there's this perspective that government is the worst provider because there's all these people in the nonprofit space or in the philanthropic space who've gone out and been really successful in some of their initiatives and things like, um, reducing poverty levels, increasing literacy rates, like insert issue, right? And that's true. The difference is, is that we're the only group that can't say no to people. I can't turn away someone because they're not following a program or because they're not doing what we told them to do. And that's not our job, right? Our job is to provide the safe. So when you say safety net, we get people at all parts of the spectrum, people who are just new and having a hard time and need a little bit of help to get back on their feet. And people who have been in systemic poverty for generations who it is that when how do we how do you meet though all the needs in that spectrum? 
in an efficient way within a budget that you have no control over, right? And that's the, that is the different and the more complicating piece of county government that I think people often take just disregard uh, that is really important, I think, to consider. Yeah, no, I, I think I thank you for saying that. So um, the Growing Democracy Project, uh, if if for our listeners that aren't familiar, and, and uh, uh, just to kind of say to you too, um, tends to we we look to break down barriers within communities and try to allow for greater communication amongst diverse constituencies. Mm-hmm. Before entering public office, I mean, you worked in the nonprofit sector for years. How do you try and break down any barriers and build bridges between, you know, Summit County Council and local organizations who are really trying to, as you said, make a difference in the communities in which they're located? Yeah, I think that there are, there's no substitute for just showing up, right? And that go, that's on both sides, it's on the it's on the elected official and on the community groups. Um, I try to make it a point to almost never turn down an invitation to go and speak or talk to folks about the county and what our role is and how we can work with you. And one of the things I'm most proud of about Summit County, which is not by any means due to me, it's a culture we've had and it's been con- started under uh, Executive Russ Pry and has continued under Executive Shapiro, where we are really. You know, I mentioned earlier how it's so hard for us to innovate and push boundaries because we're bound by rules we do not make. But that doesn't mean we won't try. And we're very willing to try in ways that I think people don't expect. So for exa- a great example of this is when LeBron James built the I Promise School. The Family Foundation approached us and we talked about how do we create wraparound services, not just for the students, but the families. So we took a someone, an intake officer and counselor from the Jobs and Family Services Center, and they work out of the I Promise School two days a week, right, to meet people where they are. And that's the kind of stuff where, you know, I can't change the amount of money that people get. I can't change the way we have to deliver those funds, but we can change how we meet people where they are. We, whatever we can do, we're willing to do. And so I think that's really important as a way for us to break down those barriers. We do that, for example, with our refugee community. We go into the North Hill neighborhood in Akron and do intake days uh, with the agencies there where folks are comfortable and where there's translators on staff to make that much, live human translators to make that much easier. So though, like that's a small example of ways I think that we really try to break down those barriers. Um, but I think there's a bigger question and a, a more of a bigger cause to that that is a struggle for us right we're not perfect at it and that is the county is a very diverse place like we have an urban center we have a rural farm community like we have everything in between and so it, the, I think the struggle for us at the county level which is different than city government is you know we have 32 towns villages and cities to think about and so we have to be balanced in our approach to that which can often frustrate our partners where they feel like Someone's getting more attention than someone else or some cities getting services that fit them better than they fit someone else. And so we do have to balance like the total picture versus the demand of where things are, are being asked of us in terms of, of being different, being innovative, trying to break down barriers and meet people where they are. So like that can be a real struggle for us and we're not perfect at it. I think we're still figuring it out as we go. Um, I also think, and this is one of my uh, uh, kind of inmate at the risk of sounding like the cliche millennial on uh, county council and county government is like, we could do a lot more to make ourselves accessible virtually. And I think we're starting to get there. We're starting to work on that. Uh, COVID has actually forced that question in a way that 
I was probably more annoying than helpful about previous. Uh, so, you know, broadcasting our meetings on Facebook. I mean, I don't, I don't kid myself. We don't have hundreds of people doing that and now that we're online, but you know, however, I think part of it de- demystifying or breaking down barriers is making us ourselves as transparent and accessible as possible. Um, which will be, a, that's going to be a process for us on a, and not a short one. Um, but on the flip side, I would also tell people, you know, government belongs to them. And like my, my point about people showing up to council, they only show up when they're mad. And it's usually on like one specific issue in their town. I, I, I'll never forget the day after the women's March in 2016, remember or 2017, I guess. I watched that on TV and I'm like, this is really cool. And like, normally like I'm all in on that stuff. I didn't participate in it cause I was just so tired. And I'm like, I can't, I just can't go and emote like that in a public space again. I need a break. But I was like, but this could be really great. We could see this huge influx of people who care about their government. Like, wow. And then I go to council the next Monday and there wasn't a single soul from the public in the chambers. And I'm like, well, you know, I guess we have more work to do. And part of that is because people, like, again, they don't know what county government is, but open door, you know, our meetings are open to the public. <laughs> so we, I hope people come and, and, and learn and want to get engaged. I think it would be great. Well, we support that as well. Like that's 100% our goal, right? Is yeah. kind of the both and like that both sides. Um, and I don't even think it's a both. I think it's multiple intersecting sides mm-hmm. <laughs> have a role of holding each other accountable and, and paying attention to what's happening and, and yeah. thinking about all the ways that we can make change um, in our communities. And, you know, you referenced, and you said that they were s- small innovations in um, the work that you are doing, but I think they're powerful inter- innovations, mm-hmm. right? So, uh, and, and, and so I just want to say, don't downplay it. I think that the work that you all are doing is pretty, quite powerful to meet people where they're at. And so well, small, but, but powerful. So uh, on council, you also serve as liaison to Summit County Executive Eileen Shapiro's mm-hmm. Council on Diversity and Inclusion. Mm-hmm. And you've referenced kind of diversity and inclusion and thinking about the complexities at the county level. Can you tell us a little bit about the work of this council and the, the efforts being made within Summit County concerning diversity and inclusion? Uh, so uh, the diversity and inclusion task force, I think, was started in 2017, like end of 17 going into 18. And uh, then in June of this year, we declared racism as a public health crisis and have started a special task force to uh, tackle what that means for us, right? I think, so the original purpose of uh, Eileen's, or I'm sorry, Executive Shapiro's um, task force was really to look at a few core pieces of the county's function, right? We are a, a large employer. We have over 2,800 employees. We have a massive budget uh, and we are a big spender in the county, particularly on the p- procurement and contract side. And so how are we ensuring that we are being uh, true to values of a diver- of creating a diverse workforce, making sure it reflects the people we serve, and then not just employing them, but promoting them through leadership, taking them on a career journey all the way through to the end, right? Making sure that that's equitable as well. Oftentimes with this, these data, right, you get a, 
people will tell you, well, here's the diversity of our workforce. And that's important, but it has to be then more just about numbers on a page. It's also got to be diversity of leadership, diversity of thought leadership in the county as well. So, and then same with our procurement process. Are we ensuring that our contracts are going to diverse contractors? How are we making sure we're reaching, um, you know, at black led businesses or women owned businesses uh, to bid in the same level that white male owned businesses continue to get work. Um, so that's like the structural pieces of the work that they, they've tackled. And, um, you know, with an entity our size and with the complexity we bring, it took like a good year to do analysis and talk about, this is my point about data because we don't always do the right data collection up front. Going back to learn from old data is really hard and takes probably more than it should more time than it should or could. We could do it faster, but, uh, fight for another day. Um, they're, so they're really, they started to work on a few core programs to address that. Um, the county has a uh, consultant who's working with our human resources department to ensure that every department and every constitutional office holder has a uh, plan for uh, workforce diversity, workforce leadership diversity uh, moving forward. That process is still ongoing. And then um, the kind of assessment of our uh, economic development operation has led to the creation of a couple new programs, including the minority contractor uh, program, uh, which we work are working with an outside partner, the Western Reserve Fund, which is part of our um, development finance authority to help uh, minority-led contractor, minority-led companies get to the structure they need to be able to bid on public dollars. So make sure they're bonded, insured, they know how to do a bid process. So it's kind of like a, I don't want to call it like a fellowship, but it's a program targeted at helping bring these businesses up to the part to where they need to be, to be competitive in our bid process. Um, so when we looked at the data, it was bad. Uh, the the diversity of our contractors and our and our bidding was bad, and so uh, we knew we'd have going to have to step in and help that along. So that's what we've been doing. Um, but I will say the other piece of this now that we're getting further into this work uh, on the racism as a public health crisis um, effort, and I, if you are looking for other people to talk to uh, on your podcast, I would highly recommend talking to my colleague Veronica Sims who. Um, was on Akron City Council and before that the Akron School Board and she's now on County Council and she comes out of the community action movement which is an amazing uh, background to have as she comes into this work because she just knows so much about policy and about how programs get applied and impact uh, communities of color uh, and particularly in our own county so um, wealth of information and knowledge and uh, passion on this subject but I will also say you know, the one thing that we are learning that Hershey and I are learning in this process is that for all of these efforts, one of the struggles in this work around diversity and inclusion is that it's, and it's, that's not unique to the county, this happens in private business too, is that it's often piecemeal. It's not holistic. It, there's not one person at the top of a big organization who's focused on every aspect of an organization from their hiring to their uh, leadership to bidding and contracting to culture, right? Not, it's not enough that you have people of color on your staff. It's that they feel welcome. It's that the culture is inclusive of them and they feel safe to, to share their voice. Um, it's all of these things. And in an organization as complex as the county, that's really hard. Like, I, I, I wish I had a more like wise statement to say, except it's really hard. It doesn't mean we shouldn't do it. 
right? Just because it's hard, we have to do it. But I also think there's a level of expectation setting. And I think this kind of goes back to one of your other questions, right? About people don't know what county government is. You know, how do you go out and have these conversations in a way where you're getting feedback from the community? Because we can't operate in a bubble. We have to hear from people, but also set the right expectations so folks understand what county government can actually do in this space, right? Like we talked before about, we are, we are an administrative arm of the state and we are, we have the possibility to make movements inside us, like an achievement of a more just society, but there are limits to what we can do. And so when you think, when we think about it, we're like, well, how do we ensure better equity and justice in the system? But understand that ultimately this is a, a long-term question of hearts and minds and that's not our space, right? Like, Winning people's hearts and minds is not the county government space, but we do have an obligation to assure equity and justice in our systems. How do we do that? And then how do we communicate that to the public to get their feedback so they understand without giving them a civics lesson first, right? Of like so many people come and they want to talk. I'm like, yeah, really important stuff. I know you want police reform. You need to go talk to the Akron City Council. Like we don't oversee the APD, right? We don't have any role there. And that can be really frustrating for folks who want to work in this space, members of the community to kind of navigate those different levels of government. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that um, my experience as a Summit County resident has been that, especially right now, Summit County has been the standard bearer for a lot of things. And as we're recording this, we're still in the midst of a public health crisis, right? And our COVID-19 pandemic. Um, how has COVID-19 <laughs> shaped your work? How or, is or, that? Uh, yeah. So, sorry, finish your question. Sorry. Oh, no. I mean, I, how's it shaped your work, the work of the county? I mean, it, are, are there ways in which this is kind of like permanently, uh, uh, you know, changed the, the work that it is that you guys are doing? Yeah. So uh, at the risk of, I, I'm, I'm trying so hard to like be in a space of hope and optimism because I know there's, we're all just inundated with so much negative and it's, we're all at this like sixth, seventh month mark of COVID. So on a personal level, we're all just done, right? I don't know about you guys, but I am ex- mentally exhausted by it. And coupled on top of the current election season we're living through, and it's just like, it's enough to make everybody be like, forget it. I'm just going to turn my TV off. Someone call me when it's over, right? Like I'm going to go bake cookies and walk my dog. Um, and so I will say like at the risk of adding on a layer, the truth is it's really hard. And it is impacting almost everything we do. You know, prior, one of the things that's really unique about Summit County um, and one of the duties council does not have is the ability to levy tax increases. We are the only county in the state that requires us to go to the ballot to increase tax. Uh, and at the, at the county council level and the executive model, we live and die on sales tax. That's our largest revenue generator. And we have the lowest sales tax rate in the, in the state. Out of all 88 counties, we're the lowest. We're at 5%. Our next, the next highest is like 5.75%, and Cuyahoga is like 8.75%. So when people talk about public money and budgets, and they're like, well, Cuyahoga County is doing this, I'm like, yes, and with 300 million more dollars, we could do that too. But do you really want to vote for an increase of sales tax revenue rate? Most people don't. Like, it's a, that's a really hard issue to take to the ballot. Um, so we haven't done it in a long time. <laughs> You know, and that's in addition to levies people are voting on annually every year, the ADM board, the Metro parks, the zoo, uh, school levies, fire and safety levies in their local communities. So this, 
this moment beyond the pandemic itself, the economic collapse has been really, really hard. And we, as a county, we were just this year back to where we were from before the 2010 collapse. It's taken us that long to climb back out of it. And we are probably one of the most fiscally healthy and fiscally responsible counties in the state, right? We never ran a deficit. We kept trying to keep money in the rainy day fund. And we have these that we have a workforce that is about a thousand people smaller now than it was in 2008. So the other struggle when you get to that point though, and something like this happens is there's nothing left to cut, right? We are operating on a minimal staff as lean and efficiently as we can. And when federal and state partners fail to reach an agreement or be functional adults at the table to have reasonable conversations about what aid needs to look like in local communities, it makes our work that much harder. And so I'll give you an example of, you know, and I say this as a county, we got, we, as Summit County is the fourth largest county in Ohio. So that means we qualified for our own CARES Act disbursement from the federal government. So we got $94 million from the federal government. We're very grateful for that because we have many friends and colleagues around the state who did not qualify. And the city of Akron didn't get its own. So we, uh, even though it's the, one of the largest cities in the state, it was really hard to spend that money because the federal government put so many restrictions and conditions on it. And I could take all 94 million of that money and hand it out to a corporation in our county and have no questions asked. If I wanted to take that money and put it in our general fund to keep 500 people on our payroll, I, we weren't allowed. And so, and which when you think about it, you know, you go to the federal government and say, listen, we're going to have to lay off 500 people and you're going to be paying for them on federal unemployment. So why don't you just let us take this federal money you've given us and keep them on payroll and keep our services running rather than us putting another 500 people on your unemployment rolls? And they said, no, you can't do that. So we go about and we create, like we, none, this was all approved. We got it all approved. We created the Department of COVID Response and we took all these people and plopped them in this new department. And their job has been to support the community, not just the county, but nonprofits, hospitals, businesses with COVID preparedness measures. So they're out taking temperatures at people's doors. They're out uh, operating as like deep clean crews. And it's because we want to keep them on our payroll as long as we can. Um, so this is an example of where like how much time and effort we spent trying to combat employment loss and come help the community sustain itself through very trying times while also trying to negotiate with federal rulemaking. This is a great example of where rulemaking matters, right? Like you can pass a, a relief package and if the rules are such garbage that you can't spend the money, like who cares? You know, like I shouldn't be that flippant about it, but it gets, you can get really frustrated with it. Right. So, um, it's an example of how it's taking up so much space and, and mental capacity. And I think the long-term for us, the immediate and the long-term is that because we were just getting back to where we were in 2009 and 2010 before the, the last uh, recession, there's projects we've been putting off, right? That we've been saying, we'll get there. We're, we're getting a little bit healthier every year and we can't put them off anymore. Like the high level bridge in downtown, that's a $90 million project, right? So these are all things we're going to have to figure out how to pay for. And we are going to need good partnership from the state and federal government. And that seems to be harder and harder to come by, unfortunately. So uh, this is the kind of stuff that is making the work much harder. And it makes things like addressing racism as a public heart health crisis more complex because 
you know, we have this duty to basic services that we have to meet. And so we end up with these other projects, like environment, we were working on an environmental sustainability plan. And a lot of the things that we were like, yeah, we think we can do this. We think we can green our car fleet. I don't know if we're going to be able to do that right now, right? We're going to have to go back and repair the like 2001 Ford focus in our fleet for the 15th time because we don't have enough cushion financially to make new purchases as often as we would like to. So just on a financial perspective, that's it. And then the public health side, um, again, you know, lacking the lack of federal and state leadership and uniform responses to a pandemic is, I don't really have words for it. It's really, you know, the fact that every school district can do what they decide to do, the fact that every uh, community can do what they decide to do. It's just, I, I have nothing but respect and awe and admiration for Donna Skoda and Tona Block, who are the women who head up our public health department because they are doing really good work in really complex, hard circumstances. Um, and so, and without the enough supplies, enough money and enough uh, support from the food government. So it's really, really trying. I can having, doing this work, which is remote, and we get to sit back and think about it. Like our jobs are in so many ways to like pontificate <laughs> on like what is happening. You know, and we've we started this podcast back in June and one of the one of the first series we did was thinking about governing amidst COVID. It, it kind of right at the in I guess it started in June, but the interview started in May and and it was still very new and people were talking about it. And the fact that we're still talking about it and that that the response is now so much more complicated as a result, I think just speaks volumes uh to what you're alluding to in terms of the yeah. complexity of what this looks like at the local level and how people are negotiating that and thinking about it and, and governing in this space um, and making decisions on in the public interest with all of this other complexity kind of swirling. And so, so I, I appreciate you uh, capturing that uh, for our listeners as well, because I think this conversation continues to, to pull through almost every interview that we do. I just say like the other thing I think about often too, is like, you know, we have happy, we have lucky troubles in some ways because we have $94 million to figure out how to spend. I can't even imagine what someone in like Benton County, which is the state's smallest county, is going through trying to figure out how to sustain services in a time when they were already, we were, most of our counties already were really tight and really having a hard time navigating the constant shifting landscape uh, around them. And so I don't, I don't envy them. And so, yeah. I, that's why I say I feel like I can't complain too much because our our problems are lucky problems on that on the financial front compared to some of the p- other people around the state. Yeah, I can appreciate that that comment. I want to just end with the question: like any words of wisdom, insights, comments you have for our listeners. What do you want people to walk away with from this conversation? Oh boy, uh, go vote. <laughs> that's my first. Please go vote. It's really easy. I think for, for people to look at the, watch the news, go on their Facebook page, talk to people around them and think this just is all doesn't matter. And my voice doesn't matter. And my participation is meaningless. And that couldn't be farther from the truth. Decisions are made by the people who show up. And so if you don't show up, you're not going to have a say in that decision. And you're as much as 
we might be nervous about voting this year, particularly because of the pandemic or because of mail-in ballots have all this kind of attention and drama around them. Voting is safe. Voting is easy and voting is meaningful in this country. And do not let anybody take that away from you. And if you, I think, come out of these six months with no other lesson, you know, let it be that like we all, all the ways in which we've pitched in to make sure our family, our friends, our community continues to survive and get through a pandemic. You know, you, for those of you who like ran to grocery store for your elderly neighbor or who have a pod where you're homeschooling a bunch of kids who don't belong to you, like that's amazing. And thank you. Don't let it stop there. Voting is the one of the highest forms of service you can give to your neighbors, to your community, and to your country. And it is our obligation to do it. So please do it. And there's all kinds of resources for you. Vote.org. The League of Women Voters does a really great uh, nonpartisan review of candidates at the county level all the way down the ticket. So please go check out like LWV411.org if you want to learn more about what's on your ballot. But just don't sit it out. We can't continue to do that and expect things to change in our country um, and in our communities. So that's my highest and most important one. <laughs> um, but but my second one is that, you know, get to know who your elected officials are. I mean, I think one of the things that's most unique about county council for me is like it is really low on the constituent work. And usually I only get constituent inquiries when someone else isn't doing their job when a city council person hasn't responded or a city city government entity redirects them to us, or even unfortunately, sometimes if someone in the county hasn't returned a phone call, that's when I get people. Um, but we're all here, like we're all here to serve you. And even if you just want to come by and learn more about, or like have a Zoom call or socially distant, uh, appropriate, appropriate interaction to learn more about county government, most of us are happy to do it. So um, get to know it. And, and for those of you who've ever remotely been tempted about running, you should do it. We need more smart young people, uh, and smart people and caring people in general to like mix it up. Thank you so much for joining us. It's been just an absolute pleasure having you on. Thank you ladies. This was great. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the growing democracy podcast. I'm Casey Boyd Swan and my co-host is Ashley Nichols. Our podcast is edited by Jeremy Demery at Golden Ox Studio right here in Cleveland, Ohio, and supported by the American Political Science Association. If you like our show and want to know more, check out our website, growingdemocracyoh.org. Join us next time when we continue this conversation about serving the public interest.